0: Welcome back to the Roadster Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Farouk Bello. And today's episode, we're talking with Rachel Moses, who is the president-elect of the British Thoracic Society and a consultant respiratory physiotherapist here in England. Now, if you know Rachel, she is a very, very knowledgeable person in the field of physiotherapy, particularly respiratory. So she knows a lot about your lungs and what makes them tick, what's good, what's bad, and everything in between for uh you know respiratory physiotherapy so in this podcast episode we're talking a lot about the different things regarding your lungs now one of the things we particularly talk about is we talk about covid effects long term and something you probably heard of known as long covid and what's that all about how am i still having symptoms six nine months down the line how am i still having side effects well we explain those in the podcast today we also talk about the effects of Obesity, the effects of smoking, the social determinants affecting lung and respiratory health as a nation, both on the nation and on an individual basis. So, in this is a two-part series. The first part is how to destroy your lungs, the second part is how to save your lungs, where we provide you the solutions and we give you our all overall thoughts on all the things we discussed so i hope you enjoyed this podcast episode because i enjoyed doing it it was a good way to spend my friday night and i give you rachel moses back to the Rooksell podcast. And uh, today's episode, as I always say, uh, and if you've listened to podcasts, I always say it's a special episode because to me, all the episodes are special with the people I talk to. And uh, today's episode is with none other than uh, Rachel Moses, who is the AHP leader, uh, one of the forefront people in respiratory physiotherapy and respiratory in general so uh i'll let rachel introduce herself so i can show, so she can give her proper titles and proper introduction uh with her own words
1: oh thanks Farouk! i'm so excited to be here i'm a massive fan of yours honestly i am and always very nervous being on the receiving end um, of questions But my name is Rachel Moses, and I am Associate Director of Rehabilitation and Therapies at the Roy Brompton and Harefield Trust here in London. I also um, am newly elected BTS president-elect, so that's British Thoracic Society, which is a kind of internationally leading respiratory society, first non-medic, so I'm super Super proud of that.
0: Congratulations.
1: And I do a lot of other roles. Thank you. Um, I do a few other roles. Like I sit on CSP Council, I'm honorary student president, which um I'm again really thankful for because that gives me great opportunity to just add diversity to my thought and practice. Um, and I do humanitarian aid work, medical aid Palestinians, and uh work as part of the Thorax BMG. Um, editorial team. So, I'm sure I've probably missed something out, but I <laughs> spread my hours.
0: <laughs> very, very busy woman, as you can see. So, I'm very happy that she was. I uh, was able to get her on the podcast, and you can tell as you, if you, if you couldn't tell, uh, Rachel is a physiotherapist like myself, but one with way more experience and way more years under her belt than uh, than myself. So, I uh, have a lot to learn from this podcast episode, and I'm I'm sure you too as well will take something from this podcast episode. Um, so, so, uh, so let's talk quickly about, before we get into the podcast topic of the day, which is how to destroy your lungs. And no, I'm not being sarcastic when I say how to destroy your lungs, but you'll get the gist of why I'm using that as the topic later on, as we discuss, but, uh, let's quickly talk about the president of the, uh, PTS society and what's that all about the president elect and uh, how, what that means and why is that relevant for you?
1: So um, the British Thoracic Society as I mentioned is um, is a society that is responsible for bringing together clinicians, multi-professional, multi-disciplinary clinicians across respiratory medicine into one place, into one society and the BTS is most widely recognized for producing guidelines and quality statements and helping to really steer respiratory practice and these guidelines are used all across the world and they, um, they rely on us having like specialist advisory groups about working with case stakeholders like the British Lung Foundation and Asthma UK, and really bringing together experts in the field to produce consensus statements where, which uses evidence and research or maybe provides advice where research evidence doesn't exist. And we also have, um, you know, um, pro- global priorities in terms of lung health, in terms of smog cessation, in terms of developing countries and how we can support our colleagues across the world. So. Yeah, it's a great organisation. Yeah. What it means to me to be president-elect, so I'll move into presidency position next year, is that as the first non-medic, this is really just demonstrating to people that normal people can achieve these positions. Like, there's no special about me. I haven't got, I haven't got a doctorate. I haven't got a, P, like a PhD or a professorship. I'm really impressed with people that do have those. Um, but I am a clinician that's just worked really hard over the last 20 years, and I've kind of just put myself out there I've got around a bit Farouk and I've put myself out there so my advice is if you want to get in similar positions in your career you can totally do it so that's why it's important to me
0: brilliant I think I think that you answered that question very well and so you can see what the BTS society means to Rachel and also you know being the first met non non-doctor is uh, it really does show people that you know you don't have to be but uh, it's great so now that we've talked about that. Let's get into the uh, the meat of the episode, and uh, you know we've already had a quick pre pre podcast talk with Rachel about this, just explaining. But the question is, you know, how do you destroy your lungs? And when I say that, I mean, what are the things that you know me and everyone else, or what are these issues that we do on a regular day to day basis, or th- real issues that have both short term and long term effects on our lungs and your respiratory? Because everyone knows without lungs, you're not going anywhere. there are a few organs in your body that uh, when those are compromised, your quality of life significantly drop or well you, you don't want them to be compromised and uh, it becomes a whole issue of management. you know it's the brain, the heart and the lungs. So I think those are the three big ones. So one of the things that you know we always do on a regular basis that we think are good or that are actually quite bad for our health.
1: Oh, wow. So that's just such a small question, isn't it? Um, If I kind of start from a different angle and say if I was to tell you that one in five people suffer from respiratory disease and it's the third biggest cause of death or it has the highest mortality rate in the UK, that really shows us that respiratory disease is important that people do die for it from it. And with one in five being affected, it can significantly impact the quality of life on a large percentage of the population. Now, there's huge healthcare inequalities that come with respiratory disease, and there's lots of inherited conditions. There is um, conditions that are beyond our control, so that they're unpreventable respiratory yeah. conditions, let's say. Yeah. But we have those, and I think that's going to be the majority of how I answer this question: is preventable respiratory conditions we talk about the most obvious and that is smoking yeah and we kind of had a little chat about this offline but smoking is multifactorial and in the world of respiratory medicine we never i say never i'm generalizing but we don't judge people for smoking because it can be something that is a lifestyle choice because of numerous reasons. Mm. So that could be cultural. In some cultures it's very appropriate to smoke. In fact it would be inappropriate not to not smoke, to smoke yeah. because it's linked it's linked to certain cultural beliefs and behaviours. In some it's it's it comes with occupation. So I mentioned I come from the shipyards, a place called Walls End, um, and there was a previously a mining village and you had a cup of tea and you had a cigarette. Now we have a cup of tea and a rich tea or a chocolate hobnob or whatever it is. So we've moved away from smoking to an obesity um epidemic. But so it's it, it's it's these inherent cultural behaviours and also societal behaviors. And when I think back to when I was a child, which I was at the time growing up in War's End, which was a, you know, was um it was it was a a, a lower class um social environment i would say generally um you know children were almost encouraged to smoke so you'd go to the corner shop with your 10 pence to get a 10 pence mix-up and they also had they had a penny tray for the sweets but they also had a cigarette tray and for 10 pence you could buy a single cigarette as a child or you could buy 10 pence mix-up and that is a. if there's any Geordies out there, maybe anyone else that comes from a similar community to mine. And I'm 42, by the way. So this is like we're talking, you know, not not too far away. Yeah, um, but that 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 was allowed. And yes, it was against the law, but they still had them. They had the they had the tab trays we used to call them. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could buy normal. a cigarette, and you could smoke. Yeah, it was very normal and it was reinforcing that smoking was okay. And then, of course, times have changed having the fruit. So we'll have advertising. Where, so tobacco companies are banned from being involved in a lot of commercial activities, from advertising, sporting events. On the packets of cigarettes, it's very clear that smoking kills and um, causes lung disease, heart disease, can cause stroke. So that's probably the biggest, the biggest public health problem that we have, tobacco. Now, it is. I mentioned to you that I've been on a call today with the tobacco specialist advisory group actually for BTS, okay. and the statistics are still shocking. So, one of the statistics on one of the surveys shows that 40%, I think it was, of all 16 to 45 year olds that admit into hospital smoke. Now, that's not a complete true representation of everyone
0: yeah.
1: because you know, sorry. There's just an ambulance gone past.
0: <laughs> it's fine. We uh, you know, Rachel works in a she's a hospital, so you know it's part of. I'll take that as part of the podcast experience. You know, you get to hear the sirens and you know day to day life. Who's <laughs> in the thick? Of, like, carry on. Like, yeah. Um.
1: Thank you. So you know, it uh, things have changed, but we are still very much living in a world where we are still kind of suffering the consequences of those societal, cultural, um, healthcare beliefs. Um, Smoking is a preventable disease though. And when we see young people coming into hospital, either because they have a respiratory condition or because they've got something else and they do smoke, that's a comorbidity for Mm -hmm. these people. Um, And we talked about, we talk about prevention, but we also talk about whose role is it um, to to avoid these preventable um, diseases. Now, if I throw in another factor, which is obesity, how do we damage our lungs? How are we destroying our lungs, like you said? Very few people relate obesity to respiratory disease. But one of the most shocking realizations I had in my previous role as a consultant respiratory physio and long-term ventilation is we had a 12-year-old child who was so obese Mm -hmm that they needed referral for a breathing machine to help them sleep at night. So we couldn't, This the pediatricians couldn't really work out why this child was so malaise, et cetera, or, other than being obese. Um, and they, they did need a, a breather machine at night, a CPAP machine, some of you might have heard about. Yeah. So to me, and this is way beyond this podcast, but to me... Yeah when a child can't go and buy their own food or they don't, they have no control about buying the Mars bars or whatever it is, then yeah. that again, it's it who's this, this whole, how are we we in our lungs? Obesity is a major part of that. And then we've got inactivity. So if COVID-19 has taught us anything, mm-hmm. it's about how much we rely on other technologies on gyms to get fit and active. How many people piled the COVID pounds on? I did because I didn't have an incentive yeah. to get out of there and do normal activity because i wasn't motivated so um inactivity as well so if i was to give you three three you know smoking obesity <clears throat> inactivity and then there's the occupational stuff so pollution yeah. um occupational hazards are huge
0: yeah so each, each, each of those three we can go into each of each of those three actually uh because those are so. For those listening, we're going to do this into two parts, as we said. You know, we'll we'll give you the 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 hard truths now, but we'll also give you the bright side in a in a bit later. But you know, with things like smoking, and you know, as you said, some of these things are cultural and you know, they're societal. And for me, hearing that is very interesting because you know, hearing that you know, at, at a young age, you could go and buy a cigarette, and you know, obviously, back in the day, I can imagine years ago during my parents' generation, and uh, back then, you know, smoking was deemed as, you know, it was a good thing. And this all, you can you know. You can go down a rabbit hole and talking about marketing and how there's big money and all this type of thing, but that's how it was in the past, but we won't go into that. And for me, I find it very interesting how, you know, till today, even in 2020, it's still... As you said, we don't judge people. It's smoke because, as you said, there are multiple reasons. And when you start looking into each of these reasons and trying to decode why, uh, why it really starts to bring out things that you realize sometimes it's out of some people's control. And this is not an excuse because sometimes it's within your control. Um, it's the it's the hard truths of it. And you've you've talked about you know smoking and obesity. Obesity is another one that for me you know, when you think of, you know, respiratory issues, obesity is not the first thing that comes into your mind. Uh, for me, I actually, now I'm thinking about it, it's not it's not, it's not, on the uh, immediate pecking order of when you're thinking, you normally think, you know, smoking and you're thinking pollution, but you don't think of obesity because I don't know for, for an extent, you know, there are, you know, in the culture we live in now in society, you know, uh, obesity has become almost a touchy subject when you bring it up sometimes, but as medical professionals, when you see the impacts of things like this, on a real, on real human being, as you said, I can imagine the, the child you saw was a very, uh, it was, it, you have to empathize with, to an extent because, you know, you're thinking this is, as you said, it preventable to an extent, you know, it's a, it's, it's something, it's not something that you need to go through. I worked for, to give someone a quick background, I had a placement in a cystic fibrosis, uh, ward once. Yeah. So I, yeah. And I know cystic fibrosis is something that is not preventable. You know, it's a, it's a genetic thing. And these people who, they had no choice, but they, they had to go the rest of their lives and, you know, people manage it differently. You know, some did a lot better, some did a lot worse, but, but that type of thing, it's not preventable. But when you're thinking about other things that are preventable, I think we need to put more emphasis on, you know, trying to minimize the amount of health issues that we have that we can change things that, you know, we can, we have a role in playing that we can actually have a bigger impact on before you get there. this comes back to all to preventative medicine, but uh, pollution is another one, which I find interesting. You know, I mean, if you talk to people from older generations, pollution was almost a natural day to day, you know, people who worked in the mines, you know, people were, I think, was it, what's the one that you can't have in buildings anymore? What's that uh, lining on the walls? Like I forget the name. Asbestos. Yes. Yes. Asbestos. And these are things that, you know, back then, People thought, you know, it's, it's a normal thing, but it was slowly killing a lot of people. And in the modern day, are there still things the pollutants that we we know there is? The air is not 100 percent pure, and the air in different parts of the world varies. But at the current moment now, what are the major things we're talking about pollution uh, that can that are still that you're still seeing currently? What do
1: you mean specifically in relation to pollution?
0: Yeah, no, just think in respect to like, you know, pollution and uh, well, yeah, kind of specifically to pollution. uh,
1: So um, in terms of this climate change which we know is affecting um, pollution. So that there's the climate change agenda, which is huge. Yeah. We have um, occupational exposure yeah. to pollutants. Yeah. Um, and we actually know the links between in some health care inequalities between socioeconomic and deprivation status is linked to multiple, multiple um, demographics, which include exposure to occupational um, pollutants. Um, so that's poor Air pollution And those people that live in inner city areas, um, you know, compare inner city to rural yeah. in the incidence of lung disease um, and also other ex- occupational pollutants. So that may be poor housing. And when you live in the when you have poor housing conditions, you're generally so that could be damp. That could be some of the asbestos type that you spoke about. And um, you're generally probably going to have worse nutrition and you're probably going to be surrounded by poor air air quality quality. so it's all about linking things in is is air pollution cause lung disease absolutely it can also be an irritant in fact there's a case in the high court at the moment for a young asthma girl who um they've um, i think her mum's lobbying at the moment to say that the high levels of nitric um around where she lived or she went to school exacerbated an asthma attack which was fatal and she sadly died um so again there's more and more cases we're saying, to show this is the reality so people with pre-existing lung conditions and being irritants and exacerbating respiratory disease but also potentially causing respiratory disease and we know that because we know there's a percentage of lung cancers that aren't caused by smoking whereas back in the day we attributed lung cancer to smoking um and yeah so i think it's not the biggest threat but it's definitely it's a definitely threat one.
0: now i think you mentioned something and uh, we'll talk a bit about more specific fear specific things like asthma and copd but i think one thing we did talk about a bit before we talked was you know this socio-economic factor which in a lot of, um, it's unfortunate realities in and in a lot of these, uh, you know, preventable diseases and even non-preventable diseases, you always find that there are socioeconomic and societal factors, and specifically, that have bigger impact on certain groups, certain people living in certain areas, either if you're below, or for example, if you're below a certain, I'm sure there are, uh, I don't have the stats off the top of my head, but I'm sure there are definitely correlations between, you know, lower incomes, well, that's definitely fair, lower incomes and, you know, poverty, and health, and you know, richer people better health, and these are the unfortunate realities that you know that are that are there and clear. And specifically for things like lung uh, respiratory issues, how, are these? Uh, can you talk a bit more about how how much of a role do they play? And and how, we'll talk about how to solve them. But how much of an issue are they? Are these socioeconomic factors? Because as you said before, I had a talk with. Uh, uh, and, and Gates was exercise work. And we're talking about, you know, sometimes people may not be able to get from, uh, in that context of what we're talking about was, you know, someone might not be able to get to the rehab center that they need to get because of the, uh, economic factors and because maybe they live too far away from the hospital. But in the context of, you know, respiratory, is it similar in, in that respect, um, with the with regards to socioeconomic factors affecting lung health and respiratory issues?
1: okay so if i tell you in england that those living in the poorest areas will die nine years earlier if you're a man and seven years earlier if you're a woman compared to those that live in the richest areas okay if i then tell you that social deprivation and lung disease are intrinsically combined they're bound together and the reason for that, if we think about socioeconomic status and if we talk about healthcare care inequalities, we'll have these four dimensions. We'll have social socioeconomic status and deprivation. We'll have protected characteristics. We'll have vulnerable groups or inclusive groups and we'll have um, geography, like I mentioned before. So with lung disease and social deprivation, you we know that there is much more likely to be a higher correlation in smoking in exposure to air pollution poorer housing poor any nutrition because it's really expensive to eat healthily isn't it yeah it is it's yeah. much much cheaper to eat crap yeah and poverty so we know people who like you said are poorer are going to have less access to healthcare. why because they feel less entitled because they are less privileged so it's when all of these interlink and there is a strong correlation between that and lung disease. And what is the end result? Well, you may die potentially up to 10 years, Well, 9.7 or so. The exact statistic is if you're a man. I mean, how tragic is that?
0: That's a very, very big gap. I mean, seven years and eight years and nine years, these are very big gaps. And, you know, this is nothing, what we're saying is nothing, you know, it's nothing new and earth shattering. These are things that we've already known and these are things that have been out there. And, you know, as you said, with respect to respiratory conditions, it relates. respect to uh, non-respiratory, you know, lower back and other health care issues, these are the common themes you will find across the board from uh, when you're talking about why people either die younger than other people? It's always these unfortunate realities, and it then becomes the the question of I know we said this again is you know whose responsibility does it then become? Because I think you, I'll steal your words that you just told me now not long ago. If every if it's every if it's everyone's responsibility, then it sometimes it becomes no one's responsibility because everyone thinks that the other person is going to do it. I'm not going to bring up the I think everyone knows that everybody, anybody, and uh, nobody. Uh, what's it called it's like a little like a, I don't know what it's called poem but you know that's the who who does it fall to um respective? what do you think or or what do you have to think about that specifically the responsibility
1: so that's a great question and we ask the, ourselves that question in the dimension dimensions of healthcare provision so what I can, if we keep this to respiratory yeah, disease exactly. prevention, healthcare inequalities, um, health, respiratory disease, healthcare inequalities are multifactorial. Yeah, we've talked about that. There's it's a multi complex model, cultural beliefs, values, behaviors, reinforcement, parents, role models, what society is telling you to do, what looks yeah. cool, celebrities are doing it. Um, so therefore, to in order to address the wide-scale healthcare inequalities that exist in relation to respiratory disease, we need a multifaceted model. At the moment, we'll have a medical model exactly. that you get COPD, you get an inhaler, yeah. you treat the symptom, you give them an inhaler. You might refer them to smoking cessation, you might refer them to pulmonary rehab. In a really good centre, you'll get all of it okay and you might even get access to a health psychologist which can really get into the nitty gritty about why you make these lifestyle choices what we don't do is ever judge people i think i mentioned that in the beginning and that's really Mm -hmm. important as respiratory clinicians because often patients can feel judged and because of their um either their the conditions they were born into define them so we really try and take that back a little bit and say right okay we don't we don't blame you for smoking or for being overweight or for being Mm -hmm. obese um of you know for whatever lifestyle choice you've made But what we do need is we need to address it because it's a fact that this is something we can stop and we can control. But to do that, you need an approach that's suitable for you. It's an individualized approach. And this is when we need to move away from the medical model of seeing a doctor, having something prescribed and then it fixing the problem. And I know um, MSK physios have been on this bandwagon for quite some time about rather than having six sessions of touching, people are doing mobs or whatever people do, like really addressing exercise And self-management and self-awareness of their condition and their pain and how you can self-manage that well we we translate that in respiratory health the problem is we don't do it on a global scale we don't do it on a national scale it's 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 hard to invest in that type of model and that's where the nhs falls down because i think we don't look at all the contributing factors that's contributing to respiratory disease or respiratory health and we're most importantly don't look at the psychosocial or psychological factors and therefore without treating that part of the problem you're never gonna either fully give up or you know so in, in terms of whose responsibility is it it's a responsibility of Every single clinician, like we said, when that when we just say that's a blanket, it doesn't happen. But it's about is this physiotherapist, if we keep this to our profession, you know, we talk about every, making every contact count and um, optimising more assessments. If someone you, asking someone is as a physiotherapist, if they're on a stroke ward, if they've had if they're in a and if they're on a respiratory ward, if they're in an MSK clinic, do you smoke? Yes or no? Have you ever tried to quit? Would you be interested in trying to quit? Do you need help trying to quit? In my experience, nine out of 10 people do not want to smoke. They've just never found the right strategy to give up. So if you as the physio in your clinic or wherever you ask the patient and they say yes, a lot of people don't ask the question because if they say yes, I do want to, give up can you help me people are like oh where do i go there's no help there's so much online stuff now you can refer to smoking cessation teams the gps specialist nurses there's so much out there for people that if you engage them in a conversation in that moment in time and they really want to make sure you try and help them
0: I think I think uh, well, that's one of the reasons I love doing podcasts like this. You know, I learned, I, it really questions how I think, and it questions, I think everyone listening, you should start to think about things like this. And you say, prevention, you know, when we say this every time, you know, prevention is better than the cure. And I, 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 one of my, my core values is, you know, I strongly believe it when I say, you know, I, would, I don't want to be, I said this again last time, I don't want to be seeing people with chronic lower back pain. And when I say this, for example, and I'll take that context or things that, you know, that can be prevented just if you made every contact count, as you said, you know, because as I've said this multiple times, you know, sometimes I may be as a healthcare pr- practitioner, you may be the only health care person that they see in a very long time. So how do you make sure that you make it as effective as possible? And you're not only just treating one aspect of the symptom, but you're trying to see the whole scale of it, and trying to look at it as a circle, as a whole human being, and seeing what can we do to improve this person's overall health and overall, uh, overall life in general, and. As i can imagine this is something and you know it's criticism criticism yeah i'm say that correctly criticism for everyone and you know everyone we all can do better and you know if you're listening to this and you're either a physio specifically or you're not a physio and you're just someone listening you know taking care of your health and you know looking ahead is a very important thing and this is why i'll quickly come on to because we have a few things to discuss but you know things like asthma and copd these are uh, Things that are, I can imagine asthma and COPD are two very common uh, respiratory issues. Correct me if I'm wrong there. Are they the most common or what are the most common ones?
1: Yeah, no, they are. That's right. And in terms of socioeconomic impact, so asthma costs us around $3 billion every year and COPD about $2 billion. So yeah, it's, um, it's they're expensive diseases, but also that gives you an idea of the impact it has on people.
0: Mm, okay. Okay, and another thing that I've um, come across recently that I know it's also we also did say was you know, COVID. You know, COVID is air uh, COVID nineteen is the thing that has changed. I would definitely say it's changed the way we all live. You know, it's changed the way we all think about things. And the irony is, it's a it's a respiratory uh, issue. It's a respiratory uh, pathology, and it's one that affects the lungs. And you know, most of the times when we when you talk about COVID, people think you know some whether or not you believe it's true but that's a whole other thing we can talk about for another day you know it's obviously clearly it's a it's a real thing because you know when you're seeing people with covid especially on the front lines as i'm sure rachel uh, has been you know not the symptoms of and the effects of covid don't only happen to as you go into the icu for example or you know you have these you know mild to moderate symptoms or you have you know any symptoms at all they can last longer than you think and I, this is something, as I said, I've just come to realize how long it can actually, the, the effects of it can still linger on and how much can they actually impact someone's life. And I told Rachel, I'm not even, I, I wasn't privy to this knowledge too much. So I'm hoping to learn a bit more about it now. I think it's called lo- long COVID symptoms, I think if I'm correct. And what so basically, what is the, that impact on the lungs post COVID, someone who's come out of rehab and, you know, it's a success. They're alive now, but they, the the journey is not over. That's what I would think.
1: Okay, great question. I mean, the first thing with COVID is when we talk about COVID and respiratory health is um is we it's post viral. So we know about post viral fatigue. We know about post viral syndrome, and we know about the long term effects that a severe respiratory. Um, injury insult infection can have so pneumonia kills young people so a chest infection can kill yeah. young fit health people viruses can so with COVID-19 what we've seen and we can talk about health inequalities in COVID if, if we want to touch on later but what we've seen in COVID is a viral pandemic on mass scale so some of the some of the symptoms we're seeing longer-term effects we would see in other viruses but it's just because we've had so many patients all at the same time yeah. now it's really important to categorize covid recovery so we have the patients who have been incredibly unwell critically unwell who've gotten yeah. admitted to intensive care units who go on ventilators who have severe lung injury who are high chance of death Um, And then they come, they survive, they leave ITU and then they get discharged. They're post ICU survivors, they're post ICU patients. They have a complex, not all, but some have a complex syndrome called post intensive care syndrome, which does include ongoing breathlessness, which which, um, we see massive nutritional loss. We see ongoing muscle mass loss, fatigue, um, nightmares, hallucination, cognitive. That's because of a critical care admission. We then have a middle group, patients who are admitted in the hospital, but who are bridged with non-invasive ventilation. So the masks that go on your face, that support your breathing. You've never been sedated. You've never needed a breathing tube. And those types of patients have a severe COVID infection, but they've never needed critical care. So they get discharged in the general community. Generally, they might get a follow up by a respiratory consultant in the hospital, but managed in the community. Then you have this other set of patients that we're seeing who have either had very mild symptoms, mm-hmm. in some cases completely asymptomatic, they might have been tested positive on surveillance or they might be tested positive on antibodies, for those okay. of us in the NHS who get antibody testing, and they might be thinking, blinking, Nora, I never even knew I had COVID. When did I have COVID? But I must have had it because I've got antibodies. But then... Four, five months down the line, the crash and burn, and they get what we're coining is this long COVID, which is a massive post-viral hit, months down the line of having the infection, and it's really wiping people out, and I'll talk about some of the symptoms so, this is what is complex about COVID 19 that you can have someone who's in a very high risk, vulnerable group who contracts COVID, has very mild symptoms, and survives. You can have someone who's 50, 40 years old, who seemingly has no pre existing healthcare conditions, who can become critically unwell and/or die. And there is no kind of rhyme or reason. We're seeing similarities between certain patient populations, and this is where the healthcare inequalities come in, Um, but really we don't know the trajectory of how this virus is going to pan pan out. The long-term effects of COVID-19 um, regardless, So if we think about the patient who's six months down the line, seven months down the line, and they've either had this crash and burn or they've had this long sustained recovery, is they have ongoing breathlessness. And that can be breathlessness at rest. It can be breathlessness on very mild exertion. It can be just sudden onset breathlessness. Some of that's related to what we call breathing pattern disorder, which is where people, when they can't catch their breasts, develop an abnormal, like asymmetrical breathing pattern, which can be completely treated with physiotherapy.
0: Yeah.
1: And then we have the fatigue element that comes in. So people um, have unexplainable fatigue, they have cognitive impairment, brain fog. So you're watching the TV. your your, your most favorite tv program whatever it is like TOWIE or Made in Chelsea or whatever it is you watch David Attenborough and you normally think god I could watch a like whole box series on that these people can't even watch half an hour before needing to change their attention and then you have the cognitive effects the short-term memory loss you have the fear and anxiety you have nightmares you have um, people are really struggling to return to work and you have survivor guilt because so many people have died of COVID. If you've been the lucky one to survive, how dare you have any symptoms? You should be grateful that you're alive. So that that's kind of in a nutshell. Now, long COVID has been coined by patients and NHS England are still deciding what they think they should call it. So it might be post-COVID syndrome. Mm-hmm. Syndrome has a lot of connotations for patients when they've been diagnosed with a syndrome. Mm-hmm. A lot of patients don't like that. And what you've got to remember as well is we've had a high incidence of healthcare workers who have got what we are coining as long COVID and they all think it should be called this long COVID. So I, I generally think, you know, whoever's making the decision up there, Matt Hancock, whoever, Chris Whitty, whoever it is, you've got to listen to what the patients are saying and yeah. if they think that they relate to that, then let's call it that.
0: It's easier for them. It's uh, it's easier if if everyone's already on the same page with with what it's called, and what the things you've just said now. To my head, I feel almost mind blown. I mean, these are things that you know when we, because now you know uh, at the height of it in March and May, you know it was very big. You know, everyone was talking, everyone was worried about it. Now, you know, people have become a bit more. You know, it's not maybe it's not as bad as you think. And saying these type of things, and you know, obviously it's not going to happen to everyone, but. It's always, it's unlucky if it happens to you and you don't understand what's actually happening and you're confused and you're thinking, I had it long ago and, you know, you're still think, seeing things now. And the, the, the relation with the, you know, the brain concentration, that one is for me is a very interesting one that I didn't think, I didn't even think about that at all, that it would, it would directly and it could affect because one thing I imagine is because we're still in it. So it's hard to see some of the things that, you know, with uh, other pathologies, you know, you've been able to study it for years and years and years. But with this particular ones, with COVID, it's, it's the first time it's happening. But I do recognize that, you know, it's the symptoms of what you show. Uh, that's what you're able to treat. Because there, yeah, don't correct me if I'm wrong again, but you can, you treat what you see from a patient. For example, your pneumonia, you can develop pneumonia. You would have to treat the person for pneumonia and X and et cetera. Is that correct? Am I, am I missing the point of that or is there something more to it?
1: Yeah. In terms of like treat, do you mean like in terms of treating the virus, you can't really like a pneumonia you would treat with certain.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So you're right with the virus. You can't really treat a virus. Yeah. I just have to treat the consequences of it this is why the vaccine is the only way out and what's really interesting is um i mean interesting is probably the wrong word because it was such a tragic situation is when i think back to sars so uh, one of the reasons i got involved quite quickly nationally with some of the work is because um i've been really fortunate when i've worked in other countries to work with other pandemic type scenarios Mm -hmm. and Um, Again, fortunate is probably the wrong word, Um, but I suppose I had that experience that I could translate into COVID. And if we look at what happened during SARS, so 2002, 2003, SARS epidemic and coronavirus, so Cov2, SARS, is a type of SARS virus. Um, It's just a difference, it's just a mutation um it's we learned a lot of what a lot of what we learned from SARS were then translated straight away into COVID-19 so when we talk about transmission we talk about how this virus spread in the fact it was aerosol particle spread yeah. if you remember at the beginning I remember seeing stuff on the tv you know when that the glimpses you get of people disinfecting their like groceries and things and in our heads we're thinking why are people doing that the virus won't survive in those types of conditions but at the time people just didn't know so they were being safe which is the right thing now we know the the only way to treat a virus is to stop the transmission and stop the spread and the you know the biggest regret i think from our government is not enforcing the mask use i mean all healthcare workers were adopting that face coverings you know we weren't leaving the hospital without um you know either scoffs or whatever um and socially distancing and weight and shield and you know um so i think if if you know on hindsight if and if we're definitely ever have a respiratory virus pandemic again they're they're the steps we'll implement as a public health measure straight away until get a vaccine
0: I mean, definitely. I mean, for even now, as we're talking now, I mean, when I see patients, I have to wear a full mask and I wear goggles now, you know, the guidelines are always slowly changing, but I can imagine they're always changing to make us safer, as, as safe as possible. But, you know, as you are right, maybe a bit earlier, you know, there are loads of things, but we, we're not going to start going into that specifically. But one more thing that for this part of it, while we've, uh, you know, we've talked a few, a lot of different things is, you know, homeopathic uh, treatments and, remedies they can spread on WhatsApp like wildfire. They can spread on Facebook. And people saying, you know, this is, you know, you take some, you know, take some ginger tea and this is, is the fight against COVID. And I've definitely gotten some on my phone, you know, it's in general WhatsApp threads that just keep going around. And people believe these things, you know. And so for me, I... Uh, that's one. One thing I want to ask you, as You, it was a specialist in this. You know, is it bad Are there? Bad uh, homeopathic and you know home remedies that people are implementing today, or you've seen, or you think uh, you know they're actually not. They're actually detrimental to your health, as opposed to actually promoting it. Because in the new age of um, media that we live in now, you can spread the wrong thing very quickly faster than you can probably spread the right thing and with the amount of information you get from you're getting one from there and there and there you sometimes it'd be some for people who are not in the medical field it'll be hard for them to know you know which one do i believe you know and some things you might say it's it's common sense but what you may you may see as common sense as an individual someone else may not see that as common sense or it may not be uh, as obvious to them do you
1: know this is this is a really interesting. So I don't. It, it's probably like yourself. We st- we still haven't stopped yet. So we're still on this treadmill, and we don't get to see sometimes a lot of the stuff out there that like the the you know the quick fixes and the old wives tales and stuff um this boils down to our very first conversation at the beginning which is around the public health message yeah. and the real the real win here in terms of combat and keeping yourself safe from respiratory viruses is being fit and healthy and active and having as fewer comorbidities as that, that you can have so that's not being obese that's being physically active and that's yeah. not smoking so when a virus if you contract a virus or anything else you have a much higher chance because you're fit and healthy and able to fight that virus that infection whatever it is because you have good you know lifestyle behaviors etc so for me in all honesty um it is really simple messages these public messages were conveying now in our society particularly England, but I would say with confidence, probably Scotland and Wales as well, because they have big healthcare inequalities, especially with smoking and, you know, lifestyle choices as well, is we look for the quick fix. So whether that be slim fast, these slim fast shakes things, whether this be weight loss capsules, whether this be machines that can help you long function because you smoke. Yeah um you know we're always looking to combat we're not treating the cause we're looking for quick fixes because of it so until we get that public health and i think we do i think the public health england this is why for me during the pandemic when they were thinking about disbanding or they, they've made a change in public Health England. Like, why now when we're in the biggest public health pandemic oh. we will ever see in our lifetimes hopefully why would you want to get away with our public health organization but and it starts in schools So, you know, I remember as a kid, we had PE lessons, then we had after school activities and we walked home. You can't walk home now because it's not safe from school. You know, you can't play out in the evenings because it's unsafe. But my friends are teachers and they say the amount of notes that kids come in to excusing them from PE for all these different reasons. And it's almost like, again, that's reinforcing it and the amount of kids that don't Take any activity up when they're sixteen and leave school. Like there's a massive gap there, isn't it? And it's yeah. only if girls want to stay slim or if boys want to get muscles. Um, yeah. t- terribly gender stereotyping there, by the way. But generally in society, that's what the attractive person looks like. Yeah. Um, yeah. will they take? Will they take on that public health message? So that's a really long answer. But um, in terms of as respiratory clinicians, we always bring it back to. Yeah. being uh you know having a healthy weight not necessarily bmi um not smoking <laughs> <laughs> looking after your lung health and being physically active and and that we'll call it activity we don't talk we don't stick too much to exercise Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's about keeping active and that's why the love activity campaigns and that are really quite powerful aren't they yeah
0: movement activities and you know uh, i read the same thing similar things it's, it's like i'm having a similar competition the same thing we were talking about i was talking with Anna was you know moving away from worrying so much about you know is the exercise you're doing you know is activity and you know are you moving as much as you can get moving but um that i think that that sums it up quite well so uh this will be the first part of the uh, two parts series. so we've talked i know we've we've uh We've given already some solutions, you know, we've given some bright sides, but, you know, we've given some hard truths as well in this first uh, part of the episode. So we'll take a short break and then we'll come back um, with the how to save your lungs uh, segment of the podcast episode. So make sure to stay tuned and so you can listen to the second part of it with uh, Rachel. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast episode and as always if you have any questions or any remarks on anything you want to know regarding each of the podcast episodes feel free to reach out at Rooks Health on all social media platforms and check the description for more details on uh, today's guests but till next week on the Rooks Health podcast. Ladies and gentlemen